Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. In 1995, a relatively new company debuted their first major motion picture. It was the first completely computer animated movie, and I'm guessing you know that it was the original Toy Story. 1995, we were introduced to characters like Woody and Buzz in 1999, just a couple of years later, characters like Jesse and Bullseye. Rex has been there from the beginning, the weird alien guys from the claw machine. Ham and Mr. Potato Head and Slinky and Mrs. Potato Head. Here we are 24 years later, and the fourth installment of that movie series is on pace to be the third highest grossing movie in the United States so far this year. How many of you have seen at least one Toy Story movie? All right. How many of you have seen all of them? All right. So it's an amazing franchise that has lasted for all of these years. And so some kids have grown up that one of their first movies was Toy Story, and now they're taking their kids to Toy Story. Um, some of us, were, Toy Story came out when we were in college, and now we are taking kids to it, and we're kind of, we've got kids that are getting ready that have grown up on it, and they're in processing it. It's a fascinating thing that's happened over these years. The first two movies came out real close together, and then there was the third one that was 11 years later, and then the fourth one that was nine years later. And at the center of these movies, as we kind of talk about when we do this series, that I believe that every great story has as its basis some semblance, some echo, some shadow of the greatest story. And we try to draw out, what's the question that's being asked? Or what's a question that's being asked in the middle of these movies that help us to understand life and that we can then find the answer to in Scripture? And in the Toy Story movies, there, is, there are lots of questions that are there. But there is one question that flows from the very first one all the way through the fourth one. From the very first movie in 1995 with computer animation at its earliest kind of development for a major motion picture to today when in Toy Story 4 you can't tell that a cat was done on the computer or if it was real. There's one question that's been in all of the movies kind of underlying it. And here's the question. What determines our identity? Now you just think with me for a moment. Those of you that at least have seen them all, but most of you are at least familiar with the concepts of it. In the first Toy Story movie, you had this um, old kind of old toy, this classic toy that was Andy's favorite, Woody, the sheriff. And one day at the birthday party when they're all worried the toys are that they're going to be replaced and Woody assures everybody it's going to be okay, that lo and behold, the kid gets the brand new astronaut space ranger, shoots laser out of his hands, or at least lights up his hand and makes noise, Buzz Lightyear. If you remember that first movie, Buzz doesn't think he's a toy, does he? He thinks he's space ranger. And the confrontation of that movie for the first part of it and then kind of accepting it is Buzz accepting his role that he, as Woody says, is you are a toy. The second movie, who has the dilemma about whether they're going to still be a toy or not? It's Woody. If you remember in the second movie, Woody gets 
taken from a yard sale, stolen from a yard sale by Al's toy barn, Al. He takes Woody back and he fixes him up. And what's his goal for Woody? To put him in a museum, sell him to a collector who will put him in a sterile box and keep him there with his Woody's Roundup gang, Jesse and Bullseye and Inspector Pete. In Toy Story 3, the question gets asked, what happens when your kid grows up and wants to move away? Like, how? what is your identity then? Who are we then? If our if we're just toys stuffed in an attic and our human moves away, who are we then? And one of the most, I mean, I know it's crazy to think about a computer animated movie with toys coming to life. One of the most emotional scenes in movie history. I will not watch that scene in two years. I'm just going to tell you that, all right? Andy drives off to college, and as he drives off to college, he leaves his toys for Bonnie. In this movie, that question centers around a new character. It's this guy. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know Forky, all right? Now, I know that for some of you, Forky's your favorite character in the new movie. I know that he's no Duke Kaboom, but he is an important character in the movie, all right? And Forky is made by Bonnie, the new girl, in kindergarten registration or um, kind of the day that they go to see kindergarten and get oriented, kindergarten orientation. All of her stuff to make something gets taken away from her, and Woody, enterprising, knocks over a trash can and puts a bunch of the trash on her table, and she makes Forky out of things from the trash. Sorry, I spoiled the first five minutes of the movie for you, all right? And Forky is brought out and introduced, as you saw in the clip, to everybody as her new toy. And Forky only wants, those of you who have seen the movie, Forky only wants to do what? Go to the trash. He says, I am trash. That's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I've always been. That's what I was supposed to be. I was in the trash. She took me out of the trash. I'm supposed to go back to the trash. And Woody tries to convince him that he is not trash because he was made by her. And she is now his, or he is now her toy. So here's the, sometimes movie gets things right. They don't realize they're getting it right. I mean, I don't think any of them wrote and sat down and thought, I'm going to write a biblical understanding of identity. But sometimes they get it right. And this movie got it right. Our identity, our worth, and our purpose is determined by our Creator. That's good stuff, right? I don't think they thought, boy, I look forward to the biblical outpinnings of this, what's going on. But what is throughout the movie is Forky is a toy only because Bonnie made him to be a toy. And that determines his value, that determines his identity, that determines his purpose. And throughout the series, that's the answer to the question. Woody is Every movie is like, we are someone's toy. He famously puts his feet up with Andy's name on it. or Now it's got Bonnie's name. That there's identification on there. And it's because he is the toy. Now, he wasn't necessarily created by Andy, but he was given to Andy as a gift. And Andy was his person. We live in a culture that struggles mightily with trying to figure out where does our identity come from. 
Where does my identity, where does my worth, where does my value, where does my purpose come from? And if you talk to the, 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 the society at large today, they will tell you that you find the answer to all of those questions internally, how you feel, who you think you are, where you can find that. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that our identity, our worth, and our purpose is determined by our Creator. I want to go back and think about Forky for just a minute. You put the picture of Forky back up, Josh. Okay. Just because it's kind of crazy to look at Forky, right? He's mismatched. He's got some, some of that uh, wire it's into a hand, kind of, maybe. He's got popsicle sticks that she's broken as his feet, which, by the way, under that, he does have her name written on separate bond and knee, right? You've got a spork, right? Who doesn't love a spork, but usually not as a plaything, right? And uh, the googly eyes and the Play-Doh or Play-Doh-like material that have been thrown away, it been cast off. It was not of high use. And yet she, if you've seen the movie, values it unbelievably. She sleeps with Forky. She loves on Forky. She puts all of her care on him. And I was thinking about that as I was watching the movie. I was thinking about what Scripture says about us outside of Christ. When we are told that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are none righteous, no, not one, that all like sheep have gone astray, and that our righteous deeds, our best days, our best moments are like filthy rags in the presence of God. We are on our own trash. I didn't get any amens there, but we are. I started to have you turn to your neighbor and say, you are trash. But I thought things could get a little personal at some point, all right? Look at what 1 Corinthians 6 says. This is Paul writing to a group of people that thought they had everything figured out. It says this, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, or males who have sex with males, nor thieves, nor greedy people, nor drunkards, nor verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And then he adds this little punchline at the end. He is writing to people that thought they had figured out they were better than other people. They had spiritual gifts that made them better than other people. And he says, and some of you used to be like this. He's saying some of you were trash. Now, the understanding of that from the New Testament is that all of us were, that we are all people who have been severely flawed. If it just stopped there, it'd be bad, but it doesn't. He says, but you, those of you that are followers of Christ, those of you that have been washed by God, were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he says, because of that, your identity, your value, and your purpose has been shifted. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, this is going to be a little crazy. We're going to take what would seem like the most basic of the three movies we're going to talk about, the most um, childlike of the three movies we're going to talk about, and we're going to do the deepest study out of that one, all right? Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the deepest chapters in scripture it brings up all kinds of questions that we will not have time to go into today but we're going to talk about a couple of those because what i want us to see is if our identity if our purpose if our value is determined by our creator then what is that what do we how are we valued how are we understood ephesians is paul's theological masterpiece in a shortened form it's only six chapters 
Ephesus, where they were, the people were living that Paul's writing to, was an intimidating, impressive uh, place. It was multicultural. It would have had crazy religious stuff going on. There were 50 temples in the city, including the largest temple of the ancient world that was a temple to Artemis. Um, sexual immorality was rampant in there in Ephesus. In fact, it was part of the temple system that they would have prostitution as part of their worship. Basically, it was a place that was not friendly to Christians at all. And what Paul wants them to understand is because of who you are in Christ, because of the value you have in Christ, and because of the purpose to which Christ has called you to, you can stand firm even in a place that is becoming more and more morally corrupt. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Now, this is an important little uh, verse, and we're going to spend just a moment here, but here's the idea. Paul is writing to a group of people that in the place where they live, they thought you had to attain spiritual ladder symbols. And when you got to a symbol, when you got to a place, when you got to a rung, then what would happen is you would get some good things in your life. And then you would have to strive to get to the next level and you get some good things in your life. And then you go to the next level and you get some good things in your life. And that it was a constant struggle to get up that hill. That if you did good to the universe, the universe would give good back to you. Modern day, we call that karma. Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this isn't a struggle that you have to try to get to. This is already given to you in Christ. You have everything you ever needed in Christ. This is not an incremental thing. This is not a step-by-step thing. This is everything you could imagine, everything you could want, everything you need is given to you now. And then he gives us three reasons Or three things that help us to identify our identity, our purpose, and our worth. And the first thing he tells us is that we are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. So you ask the question, what is my identity? What is my value? What is my hope? What is my understanding of my purpose? Well, the first thing we understand is that we are chosen by God. Look what he says starting in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Even down in verse 11, he talks about that we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. It tells us plainly in these first few verses, we are chosen By God. Now, let me just say, I know that when you start to talk about that stuff in a church, sometimes questions start to come up. What does it mean that we're chosen? What does it mean that we're predestined? Does that mean we didn't have a choice? Does that mean he chose some people and not other people? Does that mean that predestined means that there are some people that are going to hell no matter what and some people that are going to heaven no matter what? What does that mean? What does that mean? And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to give you those answers today, at least not completely. I am going to explain what I think is going on in this passage because the reality is we aren't asked to come to understand or to figure out things that God hasn't revealed to us. Anytime you begin to try to figure out things that hasn't been revealed to you, you are going beyond the scope of what God intended for us to know. And you can't shake down God to find out information He doesn't want you to know. As a parent, sometimes you have to decipher information from your kids, they're not ready to give up. Any parents in the room with me on that? 
Like sometimes you have to find out some things from your kids that they're not ready to tell you yet. And you have techniques and ways and things you try to figure out. I've told this story before, but a classic story for me. I'll tell on me. I won't tell on my kids. Um, but I, on me, when I was growing up, when I was three or four, my mom came in one day, um, and Dad, they, I'd been staying there, and uh, I had found a wall that I had done an artistic rendering on the wall. Crayons. It was beautiful. And Dad came up to me mad as he could be and said, Son, what have you done? What, are you, what did you do over here? And I just looked at him and said, uh, I didn't do it. Because, again, we're all trash, right? Like, it doesn't, you don't have to, I've never had to teach my, my kids or any kids I've ever known how to lie, right? It's part of our nature. And so I said, I didn't do it. And so dad, as dads will sometimes do, got fuming. I know you did it, and I wouldn't admit it to doing it. And so then mom came over. Dad kind of walked away, huffed, and mom walked over, and she said, hey, Lyle, come here for a second. So I walked in there with her, and she said, now, I don't understand what this is right here. And I just looked at her and I said, well, that's me and Daddy fishing right there. And I just explained the whole composition to her. Right? Because she had a way to figure out what I did not want to give up. You can't do that to God. We're not going to outsmart him. We're not going to trick him. And Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29 says, Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all that the words of this law. In other words, he says, I've given you enough stuff to you know that you have to figure out how to do what you already know. Don't try to figure out all this other stuff. And there are some parts of the Bible we're never going to get a grip on. Some things God has not revealed to us, and we will not learn. And even those things, like we read a passage like this, sometimes we're like, man, that is deep. Man, that is so deep, like all the things that are there. But here's the truth. In those moments, we are delving into the reality of God like a child who walks to the edge of the ocean and gets just far enough that his feet don't teach and says, man, it is deep out here. When if you were to go a hundred miles away, that ocean is not seven feet deep, it is miles deep. And what we have in the knowledge of God that He has revealed to us is not like the deep end of a swimming pool, it's like the shallow end. And when we try to venture in, we may think, man, we are really getting into the depths of God. We haven't scratched the surface on the depths of God, and there are things that you and I will never figure out. And when I say never figure out, I believe that part of what will happen in heaven is that we will day by day by day by day for eternity learn new and fascinating and amazing things about our God. And yet, in eternity, we will not exhaust all there is to know about God. And so for us to think that God owes us an explanation for how he operates in a particular area is awfully arrogant of people who without him are trash. But what I do know is that Ephesians chapter 1 tells me that God chose you. God chose me. God chose us before the dawn of time. That he looked before the world was established and he knew you and he loved you. And I don't know about you, man, but that blows me away. 
that before the world ever got going, before he spoke and the world came into existence, as long as there has been a consciousness of God, which is time eternal, he has known that I am coming and he has loved me in spite of who I am. Ephesians 1 tells us that he then set the process in place to save us. By the way, verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence in the original Greek. 202 words. It is an English teacher's nightmare. It is the run-on sentence of all run-on sentences. And in that one, in that one, although as a professor at Union, I have read some of these. In that one sentence, he uses 24 verbs. And 20 of them are done by God. Here are God's verbs. God blesses, God chooses, God predestines, God adopts, God bestows grace, God redeems, God forgives, God lavishes, God makes known his will and purposes, God unites together, God works, and God seals. Here are four. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. Not because there's anything good about us, but only because of the goodness of God. He looked down through history and he chose us. There's this belief in our culture that, um, that you can't have real villains anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that in movies. But like the villains get redeemed a lot of times. Even in Toy Story 4, I won't give away all of it, but the villain of the movie ends up getting redeemed. Um, my girls over the last few years have been all about this Disney movie series called Descendants. Anybody here have Descendants fans? Anybody, anybody have no clue what Descendants is? There you go. All right, so here we go. Descendants is the story of the kids of the Disney villains who are locked on an island, but they're all good at heart. So they're given an opportunity to come across, and eventually Descendants 3 came out a couple of weeks ago, and we watched that together. I watched it with the girls, and the villain from the last time becomes, sorry to spoil this for all you people, becomes a good person in this one and works together with them. At the end of the movie, Hades himself becomes a good guy. And like Eli watched, he told me he watched the last 10 minutes of it, right? I think he watched the whole thing. But he said the last 10 minutes, and he came through, and what did you say, Eli? Eli said, this is the strangest plot and worst plot I have ever seen in a movie. How did the bad person from the last time become a hero this time? Because Hollywood has a villain problem. They don't admit anymore that there are truly bad people. Everybody's a little good inside. But Scripture teaches us what? We're all the black hat. We're all evil inside. And one of the things that happens, we begin to talk about this choosing thing. It says, does that mean God chose some and God didn't choose others? Here's what I'll tell you. And I'm just reading what Ephesians has here. He tells us that he chose us from the beginning of the world. What I do know about this and what I do know about our part in this process is, first of all, that God is not obligated to choose anybody. There is nothing in you that makes God say, you know what, I really need that guy. 
Charles Spurgeon once said, I'm confident that God chose me because I would not choose him. I'm confident that he chose me before I was born because he would have seen me afterwards. He never would have chosen me then. I am confident he chose me if something unknown to me because if he knew me like I know me and I think he does, he would never choose me. But here's the second thing. And sometimes people get all weirded out about, you know, like, Pastor, like, Lyles, you never sounded like a Calvinist before. You're starting to sound like a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist, all right? It's okay if you are. It says in chapter, it says throughout Scripture that God's lack of choosing is never the reason someone didn't get saved. We don't see any example where somebody comes to God and says, man, God, I really believe in you, and I want to accept you, and I want to be your follower. And God goes, nope, I didn't choose you. In fact... Does anybody know what the last verse of the Bible is? Whosoever will come. We know that Second Peter, God says that he desires for all men to be saved, that he's being patient with us. We know that John 3.16 says that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that throughout Scripture there is this call for us to believe. And so I don't understand how this is where the mystery of God comes in, but here's what I know. God, from before the beginning of time, looked down through history and chose you. And you can make your decision to follow or accept that. God is completely sovereign over all things. He has the right to choose what He ever wants to, but He has set it up in His sovereignty that our choices are real and have consequences. Now, I've described it this way before. It's like two train tracks running off into the horizon, and they look parallel to me, but at some point in the horizon, they're going to come together and meet. And that's the way it is with this doctrine. I don't understand it, but here's what I know from Ephesians chapter 1. You are chosen by God, and that ought to make a difference in your life. If nobody else in your life has cared about you or wanted you or think you are worth anything or have told you of the value they have for you, God thought enough of you that he looked down through the ages before the beginning of the world and he says I know you and I love you here's the second thing not only are we chosen by God we are redeemed by Christ look what it says in verse 7 in him that's in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. In Him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. A couple of things about that, and we're not going to spend a, a lot of detail time here, but this is a couple of things I want you to know. There are two key words about what Christ has done for us. The first is he has redeemed us. That is an old school, old ancient word that means that he has literally bought us back from what we have sold ourselves into, that he has paid the penalty, that he has walked up to the desk and said, this one is now mine. And so when we think about even the story of Toy Story 4, sometimes it wasn't the creator that determined the purpose of the toy. It was the one that had purchased rightly the toy that determines its purpose. For us, we need to understand not only have we been created by God, we have been bought back by God through the blood of the 
Lamb of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has changed us. He has bought us back. And the way that He does that, what needed to happen in our lives is forgiveness. And so no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've come from or what your background is or what the sins of your life are, that if you believe in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross, he has paid the penalty, he has paid the price for your sin and for mine, and you can be forgiven of absolutely everything that you have. Now, for those of you in the room that are unbelievers, that have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, let me just say to you that you can have everything in your life wiped away that has been sinful and wrong and contrary to what God has because he offers it as a free gift no more guilt no more shame to have it completely wiped away now that's not to say that after you accept christ that you somehow lose all that instantaneously we still work with god through that and some of you in the room are believers in jesus christ but you're still holding on to regrets or issues or things that you did in the past and god wants you to be free of that he wants you to have that cleared off of your conscience and move forward in him doesn't mean that sometimes there aren't consequences to what god is doing in our lives or what happened in our lives that there aren't consequences we have to pay but he wants the guilt and the shame to be removed for you he wants you to be redeemed and forgiven and it tells us here that he did that not out of what we have done but according to the riches of his grace that it is in accordance with how much he owns and that he poured that out on us freely because he loves us so when we think about our identity when we think about our value when we think about our purpose we're chosen by god we're redeemed by christ and then this is the last one we are sealed by His Spirit. This is verse 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the moment you believed, that moment you believed, you were sealed in Him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption in the possession to the praise of His glory. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are sealed forever. The idea behind that is the phrase they used to seal letters, they used to seal documents, but it meant that it was secure and that it was His and that you knew without a doubt where it came from. And what it says is the Spirit seals us, that we are an airtight lock sealed by God's presence forever. Sometimes people get kind of caught up on the once saved, always thing. As Baptists, we believe that. I believe that. Here's, what I, here's why I believe that. I had very little to do with my own salvation. It was just simply accepting what had already been done for me. And this is what I'm convinced of. I know my heart. I know who I am. I know my own life. I know the trash nature of who I am. And this is what I know for sure. If I could give away my salvation, if I could unearn my salvation, if I could do enough to make God go, nope, I don't love you anymore, or nope, you're not saved anymore, I would have done it a thousand times already. I'm not responsible to keep my salvation any more than I was responsible to pay the debt for my sins in the first place. God has done that in Jesus Christ. I have every blessing through Him. Which means... If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the glorious thing, the great thing is, it's a one-time decision that changes your life for the rest of this life, but more than that, it changes your life for eternity. It's talking about here that 
the spirit that comes to us is a down payment on our inheritance. And the point is that you put a down payment on something that you intend to pay off. And this isn't like the subprime loans or the loans on your house that you're just going to pay off for 10 years and then go to another loan. This is a loan that will be paid in full and has been by Christ. The down payment is the spirit. The full completion of what we own comes when Christ comes again. And so here's my question. If you're a follower of Jesus today, are you still looking to him for your value? for your acceptance, for your purpose, for your identity. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, is today the day that you finally step across that line and ask Him to save you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.